One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, y'all. Recently, Brittany and I got a chance to sit down and talk to a man of many talents. Boots Riley. You may know Boots as a music producer and the front man of the coup. It's been a blow because they got the TV, we got the truth. They own the judges and we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs, and we got the, we got the, we got the And when we had Boots visit us in the studio, he had just added director to his resume. Do we offer you the headphones? You don't have to use them. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it just changes what I'll be trying to make my voice sound right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sometimes I wish I didn't have to put them on, but I I like to have them because it lets me know that I'm being honest. Is there music being played? We're going to play you a clip from the film, which you you obviously have seen. You know, <laughs> and you also you've seen it, but uh, but that's about times. it. That's about it. Chances yeah. are you've already seen the movie that Boots wrote and directed. Okay, cool. It's called Sorry to Bother You, and it came out this summer to rave reviews. The film is a little hard to explain, so I'll just let Boots do it. This is an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction, inspired by the world of telemarketing. In it. Lakeith Stanfield plays Cassius Green, who's a black telemarketer with self-esteem issues and existential angst, who discovers a magical way to make his voice sound like it's overdubbed by a white actor. That white actor is David Cross. Hilarity ensues. That's perfect. That actually. really was like you spot on. <laughs> you left no stone unturned, but also didn't spoil the movie though. Yeah, yeah. It gives you just enough. So okay, so, so like I, I've now seen the movie twice. So the first time I saw it, I was at South by Southwest. I texted you, Eric, yeah. immediately after, and I was like, this is about to be a classic. And then we saw it again together um, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And it's, it's like, wild to me because it felt like, you know, when I saw it at a festival, it was, it's like the first movie I ever have seen at a festival in oh. my life. And it was like, it felt like this niche, really wild, really amazing thing. It gave me the same feeling that I would have gotten seeing, like, something at, like, an indie art house film when I was a teenager. But now it's at, like, you know, you can see it at like when you know whatever major yeah. like Williamsburg Cinemas or whatever see it at the major. Mall. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And like and like that that doesn't really that's like an unusual thing to happen. I'm wondering like like how did you get this thing made to the point where now it's like everywhere? I little by little. I mean, I, I finished writing this in 2012. Mm-hmm. From like 2014 on, I've been trying to get this movie made. Just getting people on little by little and coming out of music. You know, I figured, okay, I I have contacts because I've been doing music for 20-something years. Mm -hmm. So I know people. I can get to them. I thought that this would would help me. But no, it's like the letter in in, uh, Invisible Man. It hurts you, you know, Mm -hmm. because you're a musician with a script. (laughs) You know, like, and, and... I mean, honestly, you could be a way 10 times more famous of a musician as me, and it still wouldn't help because do you really want to read uh, Jay-Z's script? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. You want to yeah. hear him rap. So that was the same thing with me. That was a hurdle. Like, people were like, I 
I have, I'm suspicious about the quality of this, but they won't say it to you. <laughs> yeah. You <know? laughs> yeah. And, and uh, so I had to get over that hurdle. And the first people to sign on to this when there was no money, no producer, that was actually David Cross and Patton Oswalt. Mm-hmm. Those two signing on to it then made people be like, well, at least maybe it's funny because <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. are they're saying that they're down to do it. So then I ran into Dave Eggers, who runs uh, McSweeney's yeah. mm-hmm. publishing house. By this point, this is 2014, and I was like, you know, maybe I'm just going to put this out on the internet because I, I can't get it made, but I want people to know. I spent enough time on this that I want people to know it was done. Mm-hmm. He published it as its own paperback book and bound it up with the uh, quarterly, and that went out to ten or 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. And I joined the SF Film as a filmmaker in residence, and then I applied to the Sundance Labs, got in there to the Screenwriters Lab. So all of these things, little by little, mm-hmm. were adding prestige to it. So people are like, oh, maybe I should read it because these folks who seem to know what they're talking about are endorsing it. Yeah. And then, because um, I started out in film school and quit film school when we got our first record deal. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I touted that a lot, even though I was lying my ass off because I don't, I, I did go to film school, but I don't remember any of that. Yeah. That, that was like a long time ago. Yeah. Tell me your history class, what you learned in it in um, your second year in, yeah. in school. You know what I'm saying? Like you may have even written a long paper about it, but. <laughs> Wouldn't you know. know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like I don't remember any of that, but it made people feel good, yeah. better. But most of the experience I, I was that I touted that was real was experience producing mm-hmm. music. So it's basically getting people confidence in it. Met Nina Yang Bon Jovi, who's Forrest Whitaker's producing partner with Significant. And um, she was down. And what she says now, which I didn't know, is that she just told her investors, look, I've been making you money. Trust me. Mm. And she didn't show them the script. <laughs> <laughs> And they cut the check. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and yeah. The film itself deals with a lot of kind of really, really important issues. You know, there are, it's like issues of labor, uh, you know, kind of how we see ourselves. Like, uh, obviously, like racism, white supremacy mm-hmm. is all, all kind of in there. One of the most memorable scenes in the movie, which is most of the scenes in the yeah, movie. Yeah, I was going to say, every scene in the movie was pretty <laughs> memorable for me. But, uh, so in that scene, uh, Danny Glover's character, Langston, who's also a telemarketer, he's talking with uh, Cassius, played by Lakeith Stanfield. And Cassius has been having trouble like making these calls, right? These, these telemarketing and sales calls. And Langston gives him some advice. Hey, young blood, let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. It's like when you're pulled over by the police. Oh, no, I just use my regular voice when that happens. I just say, back the fuck up off the car and don't nobody get hurt. All right, man, I'm just trying to give you some game. You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. People say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? 
So the crucial part that's edited out of that, and I think they edited it because we're usually using that for TV and it's a smaller amount of time, Mm -hmm. is he says, I'm not talking about Will Smith white. That ain't white. That's just proper, Mm. which is a big distinction. And in the movie, actually, when it gets played in theaters, that line usually gets trampled over by laughter anyway, and people don't (laughs) hear that part. So I had to, I ran into Jaden Smith and I had to like, I was like, hey, tell your father that this is what I, <laughs> so I meant. was meaning by it, you know. No disrespect. And also there's a, another, another part that gets edited out is Danny Glover's, um, Langston's whole explanation of what he's saying the white voice is. He says, look, there really is no white voice. Mm. It's what white people think they're supposed to sound like. It's what they wish they sounded like. It's sounding like you don't have a care. Sounding like you got your bills paid, you're about to get in your Ferrari after you get off this call. Um, and that is the the whole idea is that everybody's performing. We're all mm-hmm. performing. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just how it is, mm-hmm. right? Those performances could be for for various reasons. In this case, when they're doing it over the phone, they're actually trying to disguise the fact that they're black, mm-hmm. which is different than what some would call code switching, which I believe is like an anthropological term that has to do with people seeing that you're black, but you saying, I'm safe. Mm. Story-wise, it's not just him sounding white. There's a magic voice that you can call up that sounds like an overdub to everyone around you. I'm wondering, like, why did you choose the voices that you chose to represent that? Who are the whitest voices known to U.S. culture right now? David Cross and Patton Oswalt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're comfortable with that designation. I, mean, I don't sign- know that I can argue with it. I, was just, I mean, they signed <laughs> on to the film for some reason. Um, the, 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 the thing is, is I think that that performance of whiteness sometimes is a, a reaction, an unconscious reaction by white people to the racist tropes of black folks, mm. the idea that black folks are savage, that black folks, are, their culture isn't sufficient. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going on with the black family? It's all yeah. broken up and they're not able to survive. The whole reason for those racist stereotypes is to say that poverty is the fault of the impoverished. Mm. People are making bad choices. They don't have the right culture to give them the education of how to get out of this. And by saying that, what they're saying is that it's not the economic system. And, And why do they need to say this? Why does this need to be said in this way? We live in an economic system that has to have a certain amount of unemployed people for it to work. You can't have full employment under capitalism. Mm -hmm. If you have full employment under capitalism, then everyone can demand whatever wages they want because there's no competition for Mm. the job. You'll see like publications like Wall Street Journal and other financial publications openly worrying when the unemployment rate goes down Mm -hmm. because it's always directly connected to wages. So if we know that we're in a system where built in, there has to be unemployment. That also means that poverty is built in to this system. All of these ideas say that 
everybody could make it in this system. The reason they're not making it has to do with deficiencies in culture and stuff. And how do you tell that to the white working class? If if you are someone who's trying to sell the idea that this system is is great, you're not going to indict most of the people mm-hmm. that you're <laughs> you're selling it to. You're going to be like, hey. Just to show you, I'm going to use these others as an example Mm -hmm. of how this system really works, but people who fail being able to use it because of their culture. That's this idea that when people are in trouble, it has something to do with them. When people are in financial trouble, it has something to do with them. So there's a performance of whiteness that's all about making it seem like it's all good. Mm -hmm. It's okay. You know, yes, I am making $22,000 a year, and I am middle class. When you're not middle class, if you're making $22,000. So that performance of whiteness, I think, is a reaction to people's idea, to white people's ideas of themselves in relationship to the system due to the ideas that have been given to them about black folks position in this system. So you're saying it's like a performance that they kind of, it's a performance that they're doing all of the time regardless of their situation because they're trying to avoid an outcome that they feel like we are in. And at the very least, it's a performance of whiteness that is what we think we're performing Mm -hmm. when we're performing whiteness. I'm wondering, how did that bear out for you when you were telemarketing? Like, did you have, you know, some of the, like, some of the same issues as Cassius, where it's like he's having trouble making sales yeah. until he switches it's the voice? It's all about, yeah, and, and I can't do it exactly. It's been 20 years or something. But, you know, it's all about thinking that every problem is just a minor thing. And this is not really even a transaction. This is just a technicality that you have to give me money because that's just how the world works. But we really have so much more in common. And, you know, I'm I'm really glad you have your credit card out because we can get this over with and get on with our conversation that we're going to have soon. We can continue to connect. Oh, my gosh. That reminds me of, like, when I used to sell laundry at Nordstrom when I was, like, 21 (laughs) talking I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. trying to hustle people to get them to buy $150 bras that they yeah. don't need. Yeah. You um, you made a really good point about how sort of like performance is something that everybody has to do to some degree. And, you know, we've talked about the things that you can gain, right, from performing, whether it's the proper Will Smith or whether it's the actual David Cross. Um, I'm wondering, like, what about harm in terms of these performances? What do you stand to lose sometimes or sacrifice? Hmm. Well, like any actor, you can lose where you were before. Mm-hmm. I had a crazy experience when I co-directed that video, Me and Jesus the Pimp in the 79 Granada last night. The titular character was played by this guy, Roger Guinevere Smith. Mm-hmm. He's in deep cover. He's the dude on Do the Right Thing. That's Malcolm. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a method actor. It was a crazy experience, I'd say, and that may be why I didn't direct for a little while, because I was like, oh, this is what actors are like? Okay. <laughs> like, he, he was all the way method actor, and I had situations in bars in Oakland where he was setting fights off because he was Jesus the Pimp. He would not come out of the character. Anyway, I remember having a conversation as I was driving him back to the airport. 
And I was like, man, so you just become all of these characters. Is it hard to get back to yourself after that? And he was like, no, these characters just become part of me. Mm-hmm. And um, I can imagine that's heavy, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so maybe on a lighter way, we perform certain mannerisms that that do become part of us. And I, and I mean, I think everybody is performing them, even if it's like because this is how your parents act, you have in your mind, this is how I act or mm-hmm. how your friends act. Like I have a 17-year-old son. He definitely talks differently around me mm-hmm. than around his friends. Yeah. And I did that as well. But to a certain extent, that performance has certain rules and logic to it. Yeah. And then we... We take that in as part of our decision-making process as well. One of the other themes that kind of pops up in in the film is this idea of success. And, like, there are a bunch of characters who are kind of pursuing success in many different ways. Obviously, there's Cassius, and then you have Detroit and Squeeze, uh, Tessa Thompson and Stephen Yeun's character. So all of them are pursuing that success in kind of these different ways. And those ways ways of success are kind of in conflict with each other, which Mm -hmm. kind of drives a lot of the plot. And I've read that every character you wrote kind of as yourself, like they were a piece of yourself. These tensions of like, is it monetary success? Is it like purity of the craft? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, like doing something for the cause? How do those tensions play out for for you as an artist? Mm. Yeah, it's something that I deal with. The uh, debate between Squeeze and Detroit is happening in my head all the time. Also that sort of fear of nothingness that Cassius has. And and I think more than a drive for success that all of these characters have is the drive to be engaged, mm. the drive to give their life meaning. Mm. And for me, that was really important to have in a black character. I had never, I, I can't think of any black characters on movies, and if there are, I'd love to be corrected and see those movies, where that piece that is part of being human, thinking of yourself in the context of time and space, thinking about your existence and what it means here, like, it's it's taken out of any representation of black folks where usually it's just all about some sort of monetary gain or needing to save your uncle's house or needing to have the dance group save the rec center from mm-hmm. the uh, evil real estate developer. Mm-hmm. But I think most human beings think about, what am I doing? Who am I? And black characters are never really thought of thinking about themselves in that way. And with me, I'm always at conflict of like, is my art having an effect? How does it have an effect? When I've been an organizer, I haven't had time to do art mm-hmm. and vice versa. I need to put a lot of focus into both of them. But the question is, am I just making statements or can it connect with the real movement and help that out? Hmm. And so that's always a conflict. How is that like, I'm wondering if that's deepened for you since the movie's come out and been successful. Like, has that complicated any of those tensions for you? Hmm. I don't don't think it's been long enough for it to play out. Mm Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that, that that still exists. Like, this film talks about that, like, when rebellion is just aesthetic or when blackness is just mm. an aesthetic. Aesthetics are just things that are used on the outside of things. And 
they get consumed, they get changed. And I mean, even what we think of as blackness is strange. Like I saw this interview with George Clinton and Rolling Stone in 1976. And this was just after I think One Nation became a hit. Ready or not, yeah, we come getting down George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, I think a lot of people would argue that they are the epitome of blackness, right? Mm -hmm. But he was complaining about how everybody was saying their music was white before <laughs> that. Wow. It's hard to picture. And in that thing, he had a critique of the sound of Philadelphia. And he was like, you know, this Teddy Pendergrass stuff, it's just white pop music from the 50s. Hmm. And when you think about it, he's right. Yeah. Like, the strings, the chord progressions, mm -hmm. all of that is white pop music from the 50s. And what a lot of those songs were, like, talking about, like, ain't no stopping us now. It's like, civil rights movement is over. We're here. We made it. Look at our lush strings and horn sections mm. that you don't have in the black community, but we got them, you know? But now we think of even Teddy Pendergrass is blackness. Teddy P. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Neither of them are right or wrong. But we, even black folks, we have this aesthetic connection to whatever blackness was right there. My boy's grandfather, or my guitar player's grandfather, real old dude, he's like late 80s. Mm -hmm. And he basically was saying, basketball is white. Which is a bold claim. <laughs> but you that think is, about his yeah. age. Yeah. And to him, that's Basketball the case. was white. Hmm. That's you know? wild. <laughs> and, and, and baseball and football was black. Which now it's like, yeah. I mean, baseball is, they're, tr they're actively trying to recruit black people to play baseball because yeah. there's so few. Some people get indignant, like, about mm -hmm. what is black. So, do you have any idea what's next for you? Mm, yeah, I have a deal with Michael Ellenberg's Media Res. Michael Ellenberg, one of the guys that brought Game of Thrones to HBO. So, the deal is for me to make a TV series and it's whatever I want to do. There you go. And then I'm also doing a feature. And it's also whatever I want to do. I can't announce yet who that's with. Dope. Yeah, well, we're excited to hear more about both. Yeah, because yeah. honestly, if this was the first movie, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what comes after that? Yeah, it's uh, exactly.